Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Welcome back, all. I hope you're well. I'm almost done painting my doors, and the new pop of color is making me smile. If you're back into the swing of school, I hope you're finding your rhythm and whatever your current reality looks like. Uh, Today, we start the second of the great Homeric epics. The Odyssey may or may not have been written by the same person as the Iliad, but it's been attributed to Homer since antiquity. It's generally thought to have been composed in the late 8th century BCE. If you want to, you can dive into the scholarly debates over the language that leads some into esoteric discussions of why or why not the two epics were written by different people and why or why not the Odyssey was written in a different century. And obviously, until someone builds a time machine, we'll never really have the answer. Like the Iliad, the Odyssey is divided into 24 books. So we are going to read it over the next 24 weeks, taking one book at a time. Due to the episodic nature of the Odyssey, it lends itself to this format a little bit better than the cliffhanger nature of the Iliad. Um, And like the Iliad, even though it was written down, the Odyssey... The Odyssey still comes from an oral tradition, so we'll see a lot of those hallmarks of orality that I talked about way back at the beginning of the Greek epics series. Um, There will be a lot of speeches, and there will be lots of repetition, and a lot of epithets. We can't just call somebody Susan. We have to be Susan of the red hair or whatever. Um, An interesting thing that I learned from ancientliteratures.com is that a survey of Egyptian papyri was done in 1963, and almost half of those surviving scrolls are copies of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So there's a reason (laughs) that they've survived antiquity, um, and we still have them treated today. There are many translations of the Odyssey available, Um, old ones, new ones. As always, a good rule of thumb is to find something recent. Um, I still always recommend Lattimore's translations from the Greek because his poetry is beautiful and he does such a good job of translating the the original language. Um, Despite that, I will be working from the Robert Fitzgerald translation from 1961 because that's what I own. Um, And that's what I've used since the first time this was assigned reading when I was in high school. Um, Yes, by the time I finished my classics degree, I had read the Odyssey at least five times. Um, It's a pretty good book. (laughs) The Fitzgerald translation is good, too. If you're using it, be prepared for his transliteration of names. Uh, He uses lots of diacritical marks. Um, But at the same time, that does make it a little bit easier to understand how to pronounce all of these ancient Greek names as they might have been pronounced in in ancient Greece. one weird thing is that he gives each book a title, um, like it's a chapter in a modern book, but it, it, yeah, that's just a weird, weird thing. Um, but whatever translation you use, you'll, you'll get the same story. And that's really, that's really what we're going for here. Um, unlike some of the other books covered in this podcast, you should almost definitely be able to find this at your public library. And like I said, you can definitely find something online to check out from, you know, Hoopla or Overdrive or um, any of those number of online services that you might have access to through your public library. So with that, we'll take a short break before setting sail with Odysseus on his adventures as he wends his way home from Troy. (laughs) 
The epic begins, as we have come to expect epics to do, with an invocation of the muse, basically to the effect of sing in me, muse, about Odysseus and his story, but much more poetic. <laughs> the poet mentions that despite Odysseus's cunning and valor, he is unable to save his shipmates after they feast on the cattle of the sun. So just a little foreshadowing of things to come in this epic. But don't begin at the beginning, the poet says. Begin after all of his companions are dead, when Odysseus still longs for home, and when the nymph Calypso is still holding him captive on her island. The gods love Odysseus, or at least they pity him, except for one, Poseidon. Poseidon is determined to keep Odysseus from the happiness of home, um, but he's gone on a weekend getaway to Ethiopia so the rest of the gods can talk about Odysseus without him. Um, Zeus grumbles about how the mortals blame the gods for everything. They never own up to their own faults. Take Aegisthus, for example. He knew that stealing Agamemnon's wife and then killing Agamemnon would mean his own death, but he did it anyway. The gods even sent Hermes to warn him not to do it, but he still did. Athena responds that she has no defense for Aegisthus, but Odysseus doesn't deserve what's happened to him. He's stuck on an island in the middle of the sea, held captive by the daughter of Atlas, and every time he gets homesick for Ithaca, she seduces him. Surely it is time for his captivity to end. Zeus reminds her that Odysseus has brought Poseidon's wrath on himself. Sure, Zeus likes the guy, but Odysseus did poke out the eye of the Cyclops Polyphemus. His mother was Thoza, and his father was Poseidon, so you can understand why Poseidon is a little put out with Odysseus. Um, side note, Cyclops is how we typically say it in English, so that's the pronunciation I'll probably wind up using throughout the series. Um, I did mention in my introduction uh, that Fitzgerald it makes heavy use of transliteration of names. Um, so when I first read this in the 10th grade, I was very confused by the Kiklopes. Um, and so that's really how I should be pronouncing it. Um, most of the Greeks, gr most of the Greek words that we pronounce with a soft C today really should have a hard K sound instead. Um, but then Kiklopes is kind of fun to say, so when we get to the book about the Cyclops, I might use Kiklopes instead in Kiklope, and yeah, I might, I don't know, we'll see. That's not for several more books, <laughs> but back to what Zeus was saying. Uh, Poseidon's wrath is understandable, but yeah, maybe it's gone on long enough. It's time for Poseidon to get over it. After all, we can't let one god get away with overruling the rest of them. And no irony uh, there with that coming out of Zeus's mouth. Um, Athena asks Zeus to send Hermes to Ogygia to tell Calypso that it's time to let Odysseus go. For her part, Athena will go to Ithaca and talk to Odysseus' son to bolster his courage and to help him stand up to the pack of suitors who are taking advantage of Odysseus' absence. She puts on her sandals and flies off to Earth. And I love that image because it means that Athena, who we usually picture in ready to go, uh, you know, fully dressed for battle, that she's sitting around at home barefoot. The gods, they're just like us. Athena pops down to Ithaca and stops on the door sill to the palace. She takes on the form of Mentes, an old family friend, um, and, and she takes in the scene. Uh, the suitors are playing at dice as they lounge on ox hides while their servants are cleaning the tables and butchering whole cattle for roasting. And they, they don't see her standing there. 
but Telemachus does. He's still a boy, at least compared to the suitors, and he's sitting there daydreaming about what it would be like if his father returned. And as soon as he sees Athena, he hurries over to greet her, ashamed at the thought that a guest has been left waiting. He greets her warmly and invites her to come and eat. She can tell her story after her bodily needs of food and rest are attended to. Telemachus leads his guest into the hall, pausing to hang up her spear next to his father's, and he seats her on a throne with a foot rest and gives her a blanket, and then he pulls his own chair close. Um, they're, they're sitting apart from the suitors. Telemachus doesn't want his guest to be disrupted by those rowdy men, and he hopes that this old man has news of his father. The servants bring them food and drink before doing the same for the suitors. That group of men eat and drink before calling Phemios to sing, which he does. Under the cover of all of this noise, Telemachus leans close to his guest. He apologizes for the behavior of the suitors and says that they'd never dare if his father were here. Surely, lo, he has been lost at sea and the sun has set on any hope that he might return. Um, then he asks after his guest, who are you? Where are you from? What's your ship? What men are your sailors? You can't exactly walk to Ithaca. Athena smiles and answers. Her name is Mentes from Tafos, and oh, he used to be friends with the old king of Ithaca, Laertes. He remembers me. I, I hear he doesn't come down into town anymore, and that he stays up in the hills tending his vineyard with one lone serving woman to cook for him. Oh, don't worry, though. Odysseus isn't dead. He's just delayed. He'll be home soon. You must be his son Telemachus. You look like your father. Oh, I remember him from before he left for Troy, although we haven't seen each other since then. Telemachus shakes his head. His mother says that Odysseus is his father, but for his part, he has no way to know for sure. Athena assures him that Odysseus is his father. Then she asks what the party is for and comments on how rude the suitors are. Telemachus sighs and explains. Ithaca used to be a great place, and if he knew that Odysseus were dead, the current state would not be so painful. Then he could give his father a proper funeral and mourn for him. Instead, he's disappeared without any of the honor and glory we talked about a lot while reading the Iliad. And the lords of all of the surrounding islands have now descended on Ithaca and are courting Telemachus's mother. She doesn't want to marry any of them, but she's afraid to turn them away. And so the feasting goes on every night, and Telemachus knows that it's only time before they kill him. Athena is disturbed by this news. Odysseus needs to come home. Now. But she keeps up the guise of Mentes. She tells a story of back in the day, how men were heroes back then, and how these suitors would quickly learn their place if they were to meet a man from back in the day. Then she advises Telemachus to go to Pylos and there speak to Nestor, and then to go to Sparta to speak to Menelaus. They will be able to tell him if Odysseus is still alive. If he's dead, Telemachus should return to Ithaca, have a funeral, and give his mother another husband. And then he should take a page out of Orestes' book and take care of the suitors. And with that, she says that she must return to her ship. Telemachus thanks his guest and insists that the old man should stay, bathe, rest, accept guest gifts. Athena thanks him for the gesture, but insists that she must leave. He should hold on to the gifts. Uh, she will stop on her return trip and collect them then. And at that time, she will have an equal gift in return. Um, you can guess what that gift might, in fact, actually be. Athena leaves, and Telemachus feels lighter. He has a vision of the future now, and he thinks that the old man must have been a god in disguise. The minstrel continues to sing to the suitors. 
Whatever he was singing while Telemachus and Athena were speaking, he is now singing the homecoming of the Achaeans. Um, the Achaeans, that would be one of the groups of Greeks who fought in the Trojan War. I didn't use all of the different names, but um, that's a primary primary name for them. Um, you can imagine, given what we already read about Agamemnon and Big Ajax, that it's a super upbeat song. Up in her room, Penelope hears the song. She comes downstairs in tears and implores him to sing some other song or just stop singing. Anything but this one. Telemachus answers on Phemios' behalf. He tells her that it is Zeus, not poets, who are to blame for fate. It's not Phemios' fault that she doesn't like the latest tunes. She should just give it a try and maybe think happy thoughts about Odysseus. Penelope is surprised to hear wisdom coming from her son's mouth. Um, she withdraws to her room where she cries until Athena helps her fall asleep. But the spell of the music has been broken. Uh, the suitors start one-upping each other, each vowing to be the one Penelope will marry. Telemachus shouts at them to shut up and listen to the music. He then tells them that in the morning he's going to tell them to leave. Uh, not right now. He's giving them warning that he's going to give them a good talking to in the morning. The suitors take this about as well as you might expect. Antinous, one of the leaders of the suitors, says that the gods are making Telemachus behave too big for his britches. Telemachus isn't cowed by this and responds that he is the son of Odysseus and the rightful next king of Ithaca. Eurymachus, the second-in-command of the suitors, scoffs that the gods will decide who the next king is. Then he asks about the stranger. Telemachus's conversation with the disguised Athena has not gone unnoticed. That was just Mentes, Telemachus responds. He's Grandpa's friend, that's all. But deep inside, Telemachus knows that his guest was a god. The suitors continue singing and dancing, and once night falls, they each go to their own home, which is not a line that I remembered from previous readings. Um, and now I'm going to need to pay attention to the suitors as we read the rest of this epic, because I didn't remember them leaving Ith Ithaca or, or leaving the palace until they were forced to. Um, but not to worry, they will be back. Telemachus goes to his room. There he is waited on by Eurycleia, an old slave who has served the family since Odysseus was a baby. Telemachus changes for bed and tosses her his tunic. And she folds it and smooths it and hangs it beside the bed. And then she leaves, making sure the door is closed behind her. And Telemachus spends the night thinking about what his guest um, has told him to do. And that is the end of book one of The Odyssey. So what do you think about the Odyssey so far? I bet you thought this was going to be about Odysseus, didn't you? <laughs> it's kind of like the Iliad in that respect, um, isn't it? Don't worry, we will get to him. But these first few books make up a kind of story within the story that's called the Telemachy. Uh, first, we have the story of Telemachus and his coming of age. And then we'll get to the story of Odysseus. And then at the end, um, it will all tie together. Now, as noted, I had to read this for multiple classes, and that means I have a lot of notes written in the margins of my copy. And this is another time that I have a series of marginalia that must have once meant something to me, and based on the pen I used to make them, I'm fairly certain they were written during Keenan's epics class. Um, if I knew where my class notes were, I might understand why I have a series of passages marked with Reese, R-E-E-C-E, -E, and a Roman numeral. Uh, Maria, you were in that class with me. JJ, I'm guessing you took it. Do either of you have a clue what that means? Um, if if they do, when 
whenever I hear from them, I will, I will add that to whatever the next episode is to, to let you know, um, or put it in the conclusion of the, of the whole epic. Um, by the way, remember back in episode one, um, when I talked about why this podcast is called Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization? Maria and JJ are the other two triumvirs. They were the other two women in the program um, our graduating year. Um, and JJ is Calypso. Um, that's her pseudonym. Um, as in the Calypso, who is, we, was briefly mentioned at the beginning of book one, and we will see much more of Calypso later. Um, but now on to some analysis that I don't need my old notes for. <laughs> First, there is the question of free will. Zeus's speech before the scene shifts to Ithaca is interesting. Um, in the Iliad, I talked a lot about the conflicting ideologies between fate, free will, and the role of the gods. And um, Zeus makes that issue much more black and white in his speech. It is clear that he believes in free will, and we mere mortals, therefore, are responsible for our actions. Um, and we see this play out a bit in Athena's visit to Telemachus. She could have offered some sort of divine inspiration, but instead she comes in the guise of a human and speaks to Telemachus as an old man. Um, she gives him advice, but it is up to Telemachus to decide what he's going to do with it. And that's what, that's what we see him lying awake at night thinking about, okay, this is what, this is what Grandpa's friend Mentis told me, um, so now, now what do I do? Um, and that brings me to the, the second topic I'm going to cover in this episode, which is guest-host relationships, which, again, is something we'll see examples of throughout the Odyssey. Again, it's about a journey, and when you journey, you have to rely on, on people to take you in. Um, and, and so we'll see what it's supposed to be, such as the way Telemachus treats the person he believes to be Mentes. Um, and we'll see perversions of it, such as the way the suitors treat the house of Odysseus. Um, Telemachus's treatment of Mentes is textbook good host behavior. Um, I think that my random marginalia is somehow related to this topic, but I still have no clue what it means. Um, I could, of course, start going on and on about liminality and grief, because those are also topics that come up in this book and that we will see throughout the epic. Um, the latter topic, grief, strikes me much more reading, um, reading this at this stage of my life um, and while we're living through a pandemic. Um, but we see only brief instances of both of these topics in book one. So that's all I'm going to say about it right here. I'm happy to talk more about it um, over on the blog, of course. The link, as always, is in the show notes. On Friday, we will read the Homeric hymns dedicated to the goddess that we saw today, Athena. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.